Chapter 19 A History of California, the American Period by Robert Glass Cleland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19 Mines and Miners. Society and population in the new state, which had so vigorously thrust itself into the Union, were far from homogeneous. After excluding the native Californian and Indian elements, the citizenship was divided, both by geography and occupation, into three distinct types. First of these was the mining population, isolated for the most part from the rest of the state, with its own peculiar manner of life, its problems, and its unique institutions. Next came the tumultuous, hurrying life of San Francisco, full of corruption, generous impulses, and every other contradictory thing. Lastly, there was a long stretch of coast and valley land, as yet thinly populated and given over chiefly to cattle raising, which lay between Monterey and San Diego. Here a type of society developed which was neither that of the mines nor of San Francisco. It can best be studied, after the others have been described, in the local annals of Los Angeles from 1850 to 1860. Roughly speaking, the mining regions of California during the first three years of the gold rush embraced the mountainous portions of the territory lying between the San Joaquin River in the south and the Klamath and Trinity Rivers in the north. This area was later somewhat enlarged by the opening of mines in the Kern River district, but as late as 1852, Governor Bigler, in his annual message, classified as mining counties only those of Tuolumne, Calaveras, Sacramento, Yuba, and Butte. In this mountainous region, which until 1848 had been uninhabited except by Indians, a population of many thousands sprang up as if by magic. Quiet river bars watched the development of cities overnight, and many a lonely canyon, visited some morning by a handful of prospectors, the first white men to traverse its course since the mountains themselves were made, by sundown had become the center of an excited, roaring camp. Here, along the American, the Feather, the Yuba, the Stanislaw, and a hundred kindred streams, a new chapter was written in American history. Life was lived for a few brief years without the restraints of civilization. Democracy, as literal as the world has ever known, flourished on every hand. Romance came down and walked openly among men, leaving behind a record of heroic accomplishment that can never be blotted from American tradition. To supply the manifold needs of this suddenly arisen mining population, the rest of California found full outlet for its energies for several years. Monterey and other seaport towns, after the first rush to the mines, when shops were closed and labor became almost unobtainable, experienced a phenomenal revival in business. Merchants became wealthy, supplying miners' demands for every kind of goods. Real estate underwent an unheard-of boom. The miserable village of Yerba Buena suddenly developed into the populous, crowded city of San Francisco, with life and activity everywhere. Even Southern California, far removed from the mining fields as it was, felt the stimulus of the gold excitement. At the entrance to the gold regions, two cities, springing out of nothing, profited from the mining train more than any others, with a possible exception to San Francisco. 
These were Stockton and Sacramento. The latter, laid out on a portion of Sutter's Grant, had as many as four houses in April 1849. By November, its population fell but little short of 10,000. At that time, according to a contemporary writer, each store in town was daily taking in from $1,000 to $3,000 from its sale of mining supplies and provisions. Drinking and gambling saloons paid a monthly rental of $1,000. Wages were so high that carpenters receiving $12 a day went on strike for better pay. In the more remote interior, where lay the actual mining fields, other cities rivaling Sacramento and Stockton came into being. Many of these, such as Marysville, Placerville, Auburn, and Grass Valley, still survive. But relatively speaking, their glory has long since departed, and the position of supremacy they once occupied has been preempted by the less romantic cities of seacoast and plain. In many cases, too, these thriving communities of the gold rush now live in tradition and memory alone. The following analysis of the election returns of 1852 casts an interesting light upon the distribution of population in the mining day. San Francisco, as might be supposed, headed the list with 8,000-odd votes. Sacramento City, not just Sacramento, if you please, came next with 5,000. Nevada boasted 1,700, Stockton 1,500, Marysville nearly an equal number. Placerville, nay, Hangtown, 1,300. Columbia, 1,200. Sonora, something over 1,000. Downeyville, with 746 to its credit, outnumbered San Jose by 131. Shasta City and Santa Clara were almost equal. Mokalumna Hill cast 459 votes, while Oakland had only 300. Los Angeles straggled far to the rear of Murphy's, whose total was 519. San Diego came at the tail of the list with 167. Two more, and she might have claimed half the voting strength of the flourishing city of Volcano, mistress of Sutter Creek. Every camp had its name, perpetuating the memory of some unusual incident or given in the broad spirit of humor that came with the ox trains across the Sierra, where it found a more congenial soil than it had ever known before. Poker Flat, as was fitting, was not very far from Gomorrah. Hell Out for Noon City was offset by Alpha and Omega. Groundhog Glory was almost as prettily named as Mugfuzzle Flat or Slumgullion. Port Wine, Brandy, and Delirium Tremens perhaps had a certain logical connection. You Bet and Poverty Flat were bona fide names and not the products of Bret Hart's imagination. Hangtown long since selected to be known as Placerville, and the respectable citizens of Red Dog, with commendable civic pride, changed its name to Brooklyn and imposed a fine on anyone who ventured to use the former name. Mining itself in California was at first of the most primitive kind. Pick, shovel, crowbar, tin pan, and running water were the only requisites. Soon it was found that gold could be dug out of the crevices and rocks so a long-bladed knife was added to the list. The cradle, or rocker, also came into use in very early times. This was a wooden box or a hollowed log closed at one end and mounted on a rocker six or eight feet long, like those of an old-fashioned cradle. A second box with a perforated sheet-iron bottom 
making sort of a sieve or hopper, was fitted into the closed end of the cradle, leaving sufficient space beneath for the gravel and water to escape. The rocking was done by means of a stout pole fixed about the middle of the machine. This operation left the coarse rocks in the hopper and deposited the finer materials on the bed of the cradle. Here and there were a number of cleats or riffles which served to catch the gold as it was slowly washed along. The following account by one of the 49ers of the methods employed by himself and his companions will perhaps give a clearer idea of some of the more homemade types of these machines. Quote, Our machine was the half of a hollow log, resting on two cross logs, a crooked manzanita stick lashed around for a handle, and a sloping screen of split sticks at one end. The dirt had to be carried about a hundred feet. From a canvas sailor bag, two poles, and a cross sticks, I made a hand barrel. In the forenoon, we would dig and carry to the rocker by the river about ten or twelve barrel loads, and in the afternoon, wash it out. One would keep the rocker rocking, and another lay the gravel on the screen, and a third one of us throw water on the gravel with a tin pan fastened on a forked stick. Our machine was so imperfect, we saved no gold finer than birdshot. I am sure we lost one half. The rocker, which was a great improvement over the pan, about 1850 began in its turn to give place to another machine. This was the tom, or long tom as it was often called. The tom consisted of a wooden trough some 20 feet long and 8 inches high. Near one end, the wooden floor was displaced by a sheet iron riddle, perhaps six feet long, containing holes about the size of a large walnut. Beneath this riddle was a second trough, some ten feet long and six inches high, called the riffle box. Earth was shoveled into the head of the tom and carried by a stream of water to the riddle, where it was kept constantly stirred. This caused all but the coarsest material to pass through to the riffle box beneath. Here the gold, mixed with heavy black sand and gravel, was caught by cleats nailed across the bottom, while the lighter earth was washed away. A later improvement, which largely displaced both the rocker and the long tom, was the sluice. This was merely an open trough or flume twelve or fourteen feet long, and from a foot to three feet wide. One end was somewhat narrower than the other, so that several sluices might be joined together, making a continuous line, sometimes a hundred feet in length. Each box was supplied with riffles of various patterns, but all easily removable, and as the earth was forced along by a current of water, the gold fell to the bottom and was caught by these riffles. In most cases, it was customary to operate the sluices several days at a time before cleaning up. Then the water was turned off, the riffles taken out, and the gold carefully swept from the sluice boxes into a pan at the lower end. The first miners also learned that much gold lay hidden in pockets and crevices of the bedrock over which ran mountain streams. Where these streams were small, the miners easily turned them aside and dug out the virgin gold thus exposed with a butcher knife. But where the diversion of a large stream was undertaken, the task became one of great labor and uncertain outcome. Dams had to be built, races or flumes constructed to carry the water, and sometimes tunnels driven into which the river could be directed. In seasons of low water, these measures were reasonably successful, 
and the arduous and unproductive labor of the preceding months would find its reward many times over when the gold deposited year after year for untold centuries by one of the sierra streams was dug out of the cracks and potholes for a half mile of newly exposed river channel even at best however the outcome of this type of mining was on the lap of the gods a dozen men toiling day after day without a cent of reward from early spring until late in the fall to prepare for the diversion of a stream might some night see the work completed and a fortune awaiting them the next day when the river should be turned from its old channel before morning if the fates were unkind and they often were a sudden storm would sweep away dams ditches and hopes alike and render the months of toil barren of reward most of the first placer mining in california was done on the bars of sand and gravel in which the mountain streams abounded scores of such bars bidwells on the feather the lower bar on the mokolumna parks bar above marysville to mention only a few at random enjoyed brief notoriety and proved incredibly rich it was soon found however that the sides of the canyons yield as good returns as the bars and afterwards that the very hills themselves entirely apart from the watercourses were full of the precious stuff hence there arose a division among the mines in eighteen forty nine and eighteen fifty between the wet diggings or those of the river beds and bars and the dry diggings of the gulches and flats where water could be had only in limited quantities if at all among the most famous of the dry diggings were those surrounding placerville from which one writer says three hundred men in three months took out a daily average of from three ounces to five pounds a man others scarcely less famous were opened up near the sites of auburn and georgetown dutch flat drytown and mokalumna hill were only a few of the innumerable camps of similar kind in eighteen fifty two the discovery of the famous blue lead a deposit of very rich gravel apparently marking the course of an old river bed greatly increased the practice of drift mining which sought to reach the primitive granite underlying such pre-adamite rivers as they were called in that day quartz mining practiced for generations in mexico before the california rush began to be introduced in the grass valley region about eighteen fifty and the old mexican arastra or grinding mill became a familiar object in other sections shortly afterward the system did not attain great significance however until eighteen fifty five hydraulic mining another great advance over the old placer methods was practiced at least as early as eighteen fifty two at american hill in nevada county it soon came to supersede all other forms where conditions favored but the land so treated was ruined eternally for every other purpose no idea of the destruction wrought by the hydraulic process can be gained until one sees with his own eyes the boulder-strewn desolation left behind the yield of the mines after eighteen forty eight continued to be phenomenal what the annual total amounted to there is no accurate means of determining Hittel, probably the most reliable authority gives the following figures for the amount exported through the san francisco customs house in eighteen forty nine four million nine hundred and twenty one thousand two hundred and fifty dollars increasing yearly until eighteen fifty three at fifty seven million three hundred thirty one thousand thirty four dollars
the California State Mining Bureau in 1912 published the following estimate of production. 1848, $245,301, increasing yearly to 1852 at $81,294,700, and then in 1853, decreasing to $67,613,487. After 1853, there was a slow decline in production, but the total yield of the first decade was probably little short of half a billion dollars. The incredibly rich strikes, which characterized the late months of 1848, were equaled or surpassed in succeeding years. But because of the larger number of gold hunters after the rush of 1849, good fortune from that time on was far from universal. And in truth, while dazzling success came to a few and fair returns to many, privation and hard work waited on all. For the life of the 49er, glossed and painted as one may, was not particularly pleasant, except to that small number who found delight in its very hardships tents which seldom kept out either rain or cold and crude log cabins made up the typical miner's abode floors were generally of earth window glass was rare and not infrequently empty fruit jars were made to serve as a substitute furniture was of the simplest kind and commonly the owner's handiwork boxes and barrels serving as the material upon which he exercised his ingenuity Clothing, especially in the early years, was of every description, but the typical miner's garb consisted of flannel shirt, heavy trousers stuffed into thick leather boots, soft flannel hat, and generally a belt containing knife or pistol. Shaving was a lost art. Food was generally abundant and of surprising variety. The staples were sugar, bacon, beans, coffee, ham, mackerel, potatoes, onions, salt, and flour beef and butter were sometimes on hand wild game such as pigeons quail fish venison and bear meat could easily be obtained by the miner himself or purchased from professional hunters many of whom made more at their occupation than the miner did at his canned goods and liquors were very plentiful bread was baked in the indispensable dutch oven which with coffee pot and frying pan completed the ordinary kitchen equipment where gold was the chief stock in trade and men reckoned values in ounces instead of dollars, prices necessarily attained unheard-of levels. The old standards of value simply did not apply. A few instances will sufficiently illustrate this point. On the Stanislaus River in 1848, flour sold for a dollar and a half a pound. A like amount of brown sugar brought three dollars. Onions were a dollar a pound, and candles fifty cents each. Two barrels of liquor netted the fortunate owner seven thousand dollars in six days' time. A firm on the middle Yuba in 1851 had the following account against one of the Pegsville miners, whose taste, both for liquids and canned seafoods, was perhaps more marked than that of most of his contemporaries. One can of lobsters, three fifty. One bottle of brandy, three dollars. Three drinks, seventy-five cents. One box sardines, four dollars. Ten drinks, two fifty. Seven drinks, one seventy-five. One bottle of whiskey, three dollars. One pair of boots, eighteen dollars. 
five drinks one twenty five two bottles whiskey six dollars five drinks one twenty five a half pound of onions seventy five cents three bottles whiskey nine dollars one drink twenty five cents nine drinks two twenty five two drinks fifty cents three bottles of porter six dollars six drinks one fifty seven drinks one seventy five one box sardines four dollars one box lobsters four dollars two pair of blankets twenty eight dollars early travel to the mines was largely on horseback or by river steamer every sort of craft was pressed into the service on the sacramento and san joaquin and the parts of many small vessels were brought around the horn on the decks of steamers to be reassembled at san francisco in eighteen forty nine the fare between sacramento and the bay was twenty five or thirty dollars meals cost two dollars each staterooms were ten dollars and freight paid forty or fifty dollars a ton at such prices one of the sacramento boats the senator is reported to have cleared sixty thousand dollars monthly for her owners but the decrease of traffic and increased competition afterwards brought on a rate war which at one time reduced the cabin fare to a dollar travel in the mountains was at first on foot or by horseback goods were carried by pack train or on the owner's back but later with the building of roads instead of trails the stagecoach so inseparably connected in the public mind with the mining days and the heavy freighter came into use hotels so called existed in every mining community of any size they lacked naturally in refinement but made up for this deficiency in rates hinton r helper better known as the author of impending crisis who spent a weary and unprofitable sojourn of three years in various parts of california during the gold excitement thus describes the public house of sonora Quote, the best hotel in the place is a one-story structure built of unhewn saplings covered with canvas and floored with dirt it consists of one undivided room in which the tables berths and benches are all arranged here we sleep eat and drink four or five tiers of berths or bunks one directly above another are built against the walls of the cabin by means of upright posts and cross pieces fastened with thongs of rawhide the bedding is composed of a small straw mattress about two feet wide an uncased pillow stuffed with the same material and a single blanket when we creep into one of these nests it is optional with us whether we unboot or uncoat ourselves but it would be looked upon as an act of ill-breeding to go to bed with one's hat on." Unquote. Even at such hotels, however, the meals were generally bountiful and the fare varied, furnishing a welcome change from their own home cooking to the miners of the surrounding country when they came to town to celebrate or purchase supplies. Gold mining, even in 49, was full of the monotony of hard work, and those engaged in it naturally sought whatever diversion they could find. The field of amusement, however, was rather limited, though much of it made up in intensity what it lacked in variety. The most common and prosaic relaxation was the hour of talk and storytelling after supper, with pipes lit and campfire throwing a bit of enchantment over the little circle of tired men. Where there was music, the songs most frequently sung were those old favorites of pre-Civil War days, Ben Bolt, Highland Mary, The Last Rose of Summer, 
life on the ocean wave or even coronation and old hundred other songs of a more temporary character also had wide popularity one of these joe bowers from pike was universally sung from shasta to the stanislaw it had an interminable number of verses four of which will probably be sufficient to illustrate the general character of the masterpiece my name it is joe bowers i have a brother ike i come from old missouri came all the way from pike i'll tell you why i left thar and why i come to rome and leave my poor old mammy so far away from home i used to court a gal there her name was sally black i asked her if she'd marry me she said it was a whack she says to me joe bowers before we hitch for life your otter have a little home to keep your little wife oh sally dearest sally oh sally for your sake i'll go to california and i'll try to raise a stake says she to me joe bowers you are the man to win here's a kiss to bind the bargain and she threw a dozen in at length i went to minin put in my biggest licks went down upon the boulders just like a thousand bricks i worked both late and early in rain and sun and snow i was working for my sally twas all the same to joe the last verse recorded how poor joe received word of sally's fickleness she had jilted him for a red-headed butcher and become the mother of a red-headed baby extemporaneous compositions that had rich local flavor were also produced in moments of deep inspiration this chorus for example was an especial favorite with the miners of selby flat to be properly appreciated it should be heard shouted over and over again as a midnight serenade by a hundred lusty miners each one beating his own accompaniment on a tin washpan with a stick it ran thus on selby flat we live in style we'll stay right here till we make our pile we're sure to do it after a while then good-bye to california the more exciting diversions were drinking gambling and dancing so much has been written of the part these played in the life of a mining community that little additional can be said of course the picture has been overdrawn for not every miner lost his pile at poker and faro or drank himself into a drunken stupor every night many a forty diner indeed was as strict an abstainer as the straightest sect of prohibitionists could desire and also kept himself free from the vice of gambling except as his profession itself was one great game of chance yet the common notion so thoroughly standardized in modern motion picture scenes that every mining town was merely a collection of saloons and gambling houses adjoined by more saloons and gambling houses has behind it an element of truth the moderate use of liquor was looked upon in eighteen fifty even by the sedate society of the states in much the same light that coffee drinking is regarded in our own generation a population of young men from which the accepted restraints of public opinion were largely absent working long hours at the hardest kind of physical labor craving excitement to break the monotony and loneliness and despair which many of them experienced or else seeking an outlet for excess of animal spirits would scarcely set for themselves more rigid standards in the new environment than they were accustomed to in the old and so the miners of california drank almost as unthinkingly as they ate or slept but among the better element 
constituting probably 90% of the population, actual drunkenness found little place, except perhaps on those rare occasions when the mob spirit or some kindred influence swept whole communities into one grand spree. In nearly all the mines, Sunday morning was observed as wash day, or perhaps given over to baking the week's supply of bread, while Sunday afternoon was spent at such amusements as the town afforded. Gambling was the universal pastime. The miner had his choice of roulette, monte, faro, poker, twenty-one, all fours, lansquenet, and as many other games of chance as were known to the world of that day. Whatever the miner's selection, however, the professional gambler, with all the tricks of his trade, was pretty sure to take from him in the long run the gold he had managed to accumulate. Even where the professional element was absent, gambling between the miners themselves for surprisingly large stakes was often indulged in. One of the most interesting diaries of the time, yet published, has this description of a poker game at Coyoteville, on the south fork of the Yuba. Quote, there were four partners in one of the richest claims on the hill, and they got to gambling together. They started in playing $5 ante and passing the buck. Then they raised it to $25 ante each, and Jack Breedlove, one of the partners, cleaned out the rest of them, winning $22,000. Not satisfied with this, they staked their interest in the claim, valuing a fourth at $10,000, and when the game quit, Zeke Rubier, another of the partners, won back $8,000 and held to his fourth interest. The other two went broke, and Breedlove ended by owning three-fourths of the claim and winning $14,000, so that altogether he was $34,000 ahead. He offered his old partners work in the mine at an ounce a day, which they refused, packed their blankets, and started out in search of new diggings." The establishment of a government and the preservation of a fair degree of law and order were naturally among the most serious problems faced by the mining communities. Neither federal nor state officials were strong enough to meet the situation. And, indeed, for several years, the regularly constituted authorities made no attempt to deal with it. Each mining camp, accordingly, almost literally did that which seemed right in its own eyes, without let or hindrance from the outside. Under such conditions, political institutions were necessarily very simple, and government was designed to meet only the most fundamental needs of the society which gave it origin. These needs were chiefly the protection of life and property and the creation of some clear-cut, non-technical rules by which the business of mining might be carried on. Such regulations, though lacking the sanction of formal law, had behind them the stronger authority of custom and public opinion. Violations were generally punished with startling directness and vigor, but only after conviction according to established rules. In all of this, there was no great miracle of political evolution. It was due entirely to a certain Anglo-Saxon aptitude for self-government mixed with a large amount of common sense. Nearly all authorities agree that the mining communities were remarkably free from crime during the summer and fall of 1848. But the migration of the next year wrought a decided change. Deserters, desperados, professional gamblers, undesirables from the states, men who deliberately shed their moral standards as they left civilization behind, 
criminals and outlaws from Mexico and other Hispanic American countries, the riffraff of Europe and Asia, all these help make up the later mining population and in the chaotic social conditions around them found free play for all their vicious tendencies. Drunkenness and gambling were responsible for much of the crime committed. Moreover, the very abundance of gold and the universal practice of carrying it on one's person or leaving it in scarcely concealed hiding places tempted to theft. Many men, not naturally lawbreakers, were driven to desperation by misfortune or hardship. Others, though not necessarily professional criminals, belonged to a discontented, restless class which moved continually from camp to camp looking for a fortune without work, and naturally they drifted into crime. Society was reckless, drunkenness common, and everyone went armed with knife or pistol. Murder was therefore the commonest of crimes, and wherever self-defense could be pleaded was seldom punished. Theft was practiced in various forms, especially in the rifling of sluice boxes or the robbing of tents. Claim jumping was frequently attempted, usually with disastrous results to one or the other party. Disputes over water rights sometimes led to pitched battles and numerous deaths. But among all the violators of the law, the highwayman was the most distinguished in the days of 49. No mining camp or stagecoach but had its experience, frequently ending in tragedy with this enemy to society. Much romance has been written about him, most of which is sentimental rot, for the average highwayman of that day was like his successor of today. He was brutal, callous, and anything but sportsmanlike. He took his victims unaware and often shot them down in cold blood for the pure delight of murder. Sometimes he worked alone, but more often in company with a few debased villains like himself. Occasionally, these criminals were brought together by some conspicuously able leader into a highly organized, effective company whose depredations terrorized the whole mining area. The most notorious of these gangs was that led by Joaquin Murrieta. The operations of Murrieta and his cutthroat followers extended at one time or another almost from Siskiyou to San Diego. Other bands, like that led by Real Foot Williams in the neighborhood of Downeyville, confined their attentions to a more restricted district. Suspected criminals, at least in the more settled communities, were nearly always given what, under the circumstances, must be regarded as a fair trial. The most extreme form of lynch law, however, sometimes prevailed in newly established camps, especially in those cases where Chinamen or other foreigners were involved. But generally speaking, even here the offender was tried by judge and jury and punished according to established custom. Hanging was a recognized punishment for serious offenses, such as murder and robbery. Once the criminal had been declared guilty, justice knew no delays and was commonly meted out within a few hours. Nor is there any record of a plea of emotional insanity having saved a murderer's neck in the primitive days of 49. Minor offenses were punished with whipping and exile, or sometimes even by death. Yet in spite of the salutary effects of these self-constituted courts, and conditions would have been intolerable without them, even though they had their defects, lawlessness each year became an ever more serious problem in the mines, as indeed it was throughout the entire state. 
Delano wrote in his Life on the Plains that robbery and murder were a daily occurrence in 1851, and that organized bands of thieves existed both in the towns and mountains. The writer of the Shirley Letters, as delightful literature it may be remarked as ever came out of the mining regions, found that social life had deteriorated so seriously by 1852 that within the short space of three weeks her own little community of rich bar had witnessed murders, fearful accidents, bloody deaths, a mob, whippings, a hanging, an attempt at suicide, and a fatal duel. The truth is that all California, the mining regions as well as every other section, was compelled to fight out the old battle between law and disorder which every frontier society has had to face. The rapid increase of population, the many attractions held out to the lawless element of every land, the weakness of the regular government institutions, and the large size of the state over which these institutions were supposed to spread, all made the problem in California one of peculiar difficulty. Yet, all things considered, life and property were probably as secure in the mining regions during these uncertain years as anywhere else in the state. Certainly, lawlessness was not the exclusive prerogative of the gold seeker. Rivals in the cities and cattle sections broke down as monopoly. For dealing with questions of boundaries, rival claims, and such matters, each mining camp established its own customs. Ordinarily, there were definite local regulations covering these points, which were written into a sort of code. These were enforced by a committee of the miners acting through a president and secretary, while disputes were decided by a jury. The following articles, enacted by the miners of Jackass Gulch on October 16, 1852, will serve to show the nature of these local regulations, which for several years constituted the only mining law that the mountain regions knew. It may be remarked, parenthetically, that Jackass Gulch, five miles north of Sonora, was one of the richest camps in California and for several years enjoyed great notoriety. Here, many a lucky miner struck a bonanza that yielded him a fortune in a few hours. The regulations read thus. Article 1. Each and every person shall be entitled to one claim by virtue of occupation, the same not to exceed 100 feet square. Article 2. To hold any claim or claims by virtue of purchase, the same must be in good faith and under a bona fide bill of sale, certified to as to the genuineness of the signature and the consideration given by two disinterested persons. Article 3. Any question arising under Article 2 shall be decided on application of either party by a jury of five members. Article 4. Any claim located on any gulch may be held by putting up notices with the names of the parties thereon and renewing the same every ten days till water can be had. Footnote. In most cases, a pick or shovel left in the workings was sufficient to hold a claim. In footnote. Article 5. Any claim upon which there is sufficiency of water to be worked in the usual manner, if not worked for the space of five days, shall be forfeited, unless provided the party interested is prevented from working by sickness or other good and sufficient cause. Article 6. These rules and bylaws shall extend over jackass and soldier gulches and their tributaries. Charles Gibson, President, 
Jazz Corniff, Secretary. One of the most fertile causes of trouble in the mining regions was the question of water rights. In many of the dry diggings, water could be obtained only by constructing costly wooden flumes or open ditches, and not infrequently companies were formed to undertake this work, finding their profit in the sale of water to the various claims. The main ditch or flume, upon reaching the diggings, was divided into as many smaller streams as it could adequately supply, and these in turn were made to serve two or three long toms apiece. From four to ten percent of the gold secured by the miners went to pay these water charges, so that the profits of the ditch companies were generally very large. The companies supplying Timbuktu, for example, paid annual dividends of 40% on an investment of $600,000. In this case, the ditch through which the water flowed was 35 miles long. The dependence of the miners upon such companies for the water, without which operations were impossible, the rival claims for stream rights, the question of prior use, and a score of similar issues made water almost as much a source of wrangling and bloodshed as the gold itself. To settle these disputes, the state at last built up a most elaborate ripperarian code, which became much more complex when the long, bitter struggle began over the use of streams for irrigation purposes. But in the hectic days of California's youth, the question of water ownership and use was generally settled by force, rather than by legal technicalities. The foreign element in the mines was also the cause of a vast amount of trouble. In the great rush of 1848 and 1849, almost as many vessels came from foreign ports as from the United States. Japan seems to have been practically the only country of importance not represented in the heterogeneous population that crowded into the Sierra. And before many months, racial antagonism began to appear in various forms. As early as January 1849, General Persifor F. Smith, who was then at Panama en route to California to take command of the United States forces, urged that all non-citizens who sought to mine on the public domain should be treated as trespassers. But his efforts failed and the foreign influx still continued. Generally speaking, persons of European birth were not regarded as aliens by the American miners. Footnote. The French miner, however, was not very popular in most Anglo-Saxon camps. In footnote. Indeed, if one omits the Indians, the only foreigners against whom real prejudice existed were Mexicans or Hispanic Americans generally, and the Chinese. The former were very numerous, coming into California by the thousands overland from Mexico, and by sea from every country of Central and South America. The states of Chihuahua and Sonora were especially well represented in this migration, and the fame of the latter still lingers in the name of one of the most important of mining towns. These Hispanic Americans, whether from Chile, Peru, Mexico, or any other country south of the Rio Grande, were skilled miners and trained for generations in a business with which most American immigrants were experimenting for the first time. Many of them were decent and law-abiding enough, but without prejudice, it must be admitted that a considerable portion belonged to a class ranked as undesirable even in the countries from which they came. They were inveterate gamblers and utterly reckless when intoxicated. Robbery and murder were common enough with them before they came to California, 
and the new environment furnished both cause and opportunity for carrying on these crimes on a larger scale. From them came many of the most desperate criminals of the mining days, and as a natural consequence, the cruelest and most treacherous deeds were always laid at their door. In addition to the evils for which the Hispanic Americans were actually responsible, the old anti-Spanish prejudice of the Southwest also worked against them in California. Frequently, this antipathy was mutual, resulting in a small race war accompanied by much bloodshed. More often, however, race prejudice, stimulated by the helplessness of the victims, led the rougher element of a mining camp, many of whom were quite likely to be foreigners themselves, to seize the claims which Mexicans or Chileans had opened up and drive the latter away from the community without resorting to actual bloodshed, unless the dispossessed owners were foolish enough to resist such high-handed acts of justice. Later on, many mining camps passed laws like that enacted at El Dorado Branch House, that no Asiatic, Mexican, or South American shall hold a claim in our mines. From a political standpoint, this feeling against the Mexican miners and their kindred culminated in the famous Foreign Miners Tax Law of the First California Legislature. The chief feature of this statute was a monthly tax of $20 upon each foreigner engaged in mining. This was collected under a system of licenses and forced many foreigners to abandon claims of their own to work for day wages. Others refused to pay the fee, forcibly resisting the officials sent to collect it. Evasions were also common, and scoundrels, masquerading as state officials, often obtained large sums from false collections or through various other forms of graft. Altogether, the tax proved such a failure and troublemaker that it was speedily repealed. Some time afterward, however, it was revived at a much lower rate. Agitation against the Chinese did not begin until 1851, since previous to that time they were not present in the mining camp in sufficient numbers to arouse prejudice. But opposition developed fast enough when the Hong Kong migration set in on a large scale. Unlike the Mexican, the Chinaman was seldom guilty of bloodshed unless his victim was a fellow countryman. He was peaceful, inoffensive, and nearly always content to work over claims that his superiors had abandoned. While passionately fond of gambling, he won or lost without resorting to violence. About the most to be said against him was that he kept to himself, wore peculiar clothes, worked long hours for relatively small returns, and sometimes robbed a white man's claim or cleaned up a sluice box 24 hours before the disappointed owner got around to do it for himself. For all these faults, the Chinamen paid very dearly, and for many others which criminals of other races fastened upon his defenseless person. As a consequence, he was lynched singly or in groups when some mining camp lost its head or surrendered its sense of justice to the baser element. His most common misfortune, however, was to be driven off the claim he had taken up or bought. This was sometimes done by men of the professional claim-jumping class, who could too often, though not always, count upon anti-Chinese prejudice among the miners to prevent any defense of the unlucky owner. At other times, whole camps united to drive the Chinese out of their district. For example, 200 Chinamen on the American River were expelled from their claims by 60 miners from Mormon Bar in the spring of 1852. 
the same sixty next descended upon four hundred celestials who were hard at work farther down the river at horseshoe bar to accomplish the work properly in this particular case it was considered necessary to engage a band to accompany the expedition to conclude this chapter which in limited space has sought to summarize the most crowded and energetic period of california history one can do no better than to quote the following paragraph from howard shin a recognized authority of the mining days quote, the typical camp of the golden prime of forty nine was flush lively reckless and vigorous saloons and gambling houses abounded buildings and whole streets grew up like mushrooms almost in a night every man carried a buckskin bag of gold dust and it was received as currency at a dollar a pinch every one went armed and felt fully able to protect himself a stormy life ebbed and flowed through the town in the camp gathered as one household under no law but that of their own making were men from the north south east and west and from nearly every country of Europe, Asia, and South America. They mined, traded, gambled, fought, discussed camp affairs. They paid 50 cents a drink for their whiskey and $50 a barrel for their flour, and $30 a piece for butcher knives with which to pick gold from the rock crevices. Shin might also have added that thus the miners played their part in one of the most romantic episodes of American history, and helped in no mean way to lay the foundation for a very noble state. End of chapter 19